and welcome. It's the Dice of Screaming podcast, and you're oh. listening to us live. And oh, wow, he was—he sounded a little distressed there. Uh, well, as well he should be. Oh well, yes, because you're listening to us, and it's yeah, Tuesday. that guy has got plenty to scream about. Uh, you're, you're stuck with us. It's Topic Tuesday, and uh, <laughs> you are here once again with the TV dinner of gaming podcasts. Uh, you know, it's not exactly nutritional, but I mean, it'll keep you alive. It's not so bad, you know. <laughs> we'll get you through it. You know, you might even, you know, learn a thing or two while you're there. Um, yeah, so it's a beautiful day here, Tuesday. Got all the windows open. Everything's going fine. So hope it's good with you as well. Uh, still in the quarantine, but uh, we're keeping it uh, real out here in the wilds of southwest Michigan. And uh, nonetheless, we're here with some topic on this Tuesday. What is the topic? Well, you probably already read the header, so... You're already ahead of the game. Yeah, you're you're hip to us. You yeah, you know you what's going know. on. You've already got this figured out. But we're gonna keep the pretense up just just the same. It's all about the pretense. That's right. It's illusion and allegory, man. That's how you keep people hooked. Yeah. Never tell them anything. Um that and the, the callback. Yeah, the callback? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gotta have the callback. Whoops, there went my kimono. Well, well there you go. <laughs> See what I did there? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and of course, you can expect nothing less from us. Um, yeah, so we got some call-ins, so we're going to turn to those. Uh, Jason, over there, giving us some heck, and uh, giving what for on our last episode about some game stores. Some pluses and minuses. That's right, that's the way we like them. We like them coming in all of them. All right, so we're going to get to that and be right back. Hey guys, great episode on supporting the local gaming store. That's so important right now. You know, please, everybody, do that. Wonderful episode. I don't have any issue with this new 5th edition source book off of Magic the Gathering for this Greek-inspired thing, but it hits a pet peeve of mine. It, it's not about that. I think people, if if they're used to that setting, they want to play in that setting, or somebody wants to buy that and run in it, that's great. More power to them. But I, I personally dislike settings that change things slightly with names and con- and country names and god names and so you're trying I'm too old to try to remember you know oh well this is really kind of this and now if I'd been playing Magic the Gathering for years and was used to all this stuff from Magic the Gathering it makes sense but like for me I'm getting actually ramping up a Barbarian's Lemoria game using a Greek setting but I'm going to use all the normal Greek gods and the and the city-states that were there. It's not going to really be historical. It's, you know, Greek, mythic Greece is in... It's Ray Harryhausen's mythic Greece, basically, right? So Clash of the Titans, Jason the Argonauts, that kind of thing. Maybe a little bit of Hercules and Xena thrown in there. But we'll use real maps. Of course, there'll be islands that aren't on the maps and city-states that aren't on the maps. But, you know, so... And that's easier for me in trying to remember made-up names. It, it's like seven seas, right? Seven seas... You have these, it's Europe, but they have weird names instead of the European names. And then you have to remember, oh yeah, this is the analog for England. This is the analog for for France. No, just use England and France. Ugh, it's a pet peeve of mine. It doesn't have to be logical. And and again, I'm not saying anything bad against this new book. I think that's great. And for the people who are going to buy it and use it, I think that's great. I'm not picking on it. It's just, yeah, pet peeve. All right, well, thanks again, Jason. Yeah, uh, frequent caller. Uh, always giving us some good insight onto what's going on. Oh, well, yeah, glad you enjoyed the uh, uh, 
discussion on support your local game store because I mean it's a subject near and dear to our hearts that it would be terrible to come out the other side of all this madness and not uh, have our favorite game stores there with us. Uh, it'll be good to celebrate having made it through this together uh, sometime down the road. That day will come. I totally believe that. Oh yeah, we'll get through it. It's just a matter of time right now. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of with you a little bit on the pet peeve. I mean, I like uh, I like renaming stuff, so it doesn't bother me at all. But if that's kind of you know your thing, if I was running a historical game like oh Vampire of the Dark Ages, of course in the Carpathian Mountains, I'd be using some real life stuff. You know, like oh the bridge is washed out. Oh wait, 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 that's our thing to say. We're the vampires. Sorry, he's always. <laughs> oh, you're in the Carpathian Mountains. Uh-oh, look out. It's bad country. Oh, wait. It's a wolf. Where? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, but... Do you have any weirdgens? <laughs> weirdgens? No, you... I know. Andy Warhol film. I know, I know. Weird. <laughs> they got the reference. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was... Uh, it's nice to have a change of pace in the names because, like, with 7C, very very much dear to my heart. I always liked the way Eisen for Germany, you know, Iron, come on, Montaigne for France, France, and Vodeci for, you know, the uh, warring city-states of the Italians. Avalon for England. And, yep. Uh, what was the little island that the crazy character I played came from? Oh, the uh, Ire, the Irish. Ire, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were classic. What were They were used to be called uh, Victorian-era names, where they kind of came up with a new naming convention, but that's neither here nor there. But yeah, I mean, you know, if, you, if it's a lot of work for you, obviously go with what's familiar, what works yeah, for you. you know, I mean, it depends on a person's level of commitment. I mean, if they're pushing for a campaign that is super close to historical accuracy, I suppose something could be said for them to just, uh, you know, poop or get off the pot uh, in the sense that if you're already doing 90% of this just like X, why not just name everything just like X right. and run with it? Uh, on the other hand, if you have changed enough that it's not really identical per se, uh, but you, you want to have inspired by or similar to, that's still a safe zone. I don't think that's uh, too far out of line. I'm, I'm, I have committed exactly that sin uh, in borrowing from, uh, you know, cultures that we know historically, and then using them in game, uh, under completely different names and completely different landscapes. But I, I just needed some kind of basis to go on that, like people would have a frame of reference for. So, uh, I have done this. Uh, couple of times i don't consider it fully sinful but you know hey to get good dms don't borrow they steal <laughs> no shame well right on and uh you know more power to you do what you do what works for you and your group that's the number one thing but uh oh yeah if you got six people who hate that kind of thing yeah. do, do not trot that out every week <laughs> absolutely so, yeah, um, all right, well, thanks for the call-ins, and uh, we'll just keep meandering our way through this uh, as we go through. Oh, so, yeah, apparently the neighbors think that it's honking the horn day. What's going on with that? Well, it sounds like a car alarm is going off. Yeah, well, a really sick one. 
Maybe you guys can hear. Maybe you can't. Hopefully you can't. But uh, uh, yeah, it sounds like a small, sickly European car is upset about something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like a just a little wheezy old man car. Beep, 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 yeah. beep. Well, they'd have the windows open. Where's my pants? What time is Matlock on? Where am I? Uh, so, yeah, it, it's hopefully not uh, really obvious in the background. Yeah, but so, yeah, keeping with that, so what's our topic tonight? Well, a couple things, really. Uh, first, it's a retro review. So, yeah, we're going back to the classics. and uh, We're talking about a game, and oh. you know what? how I feel about games? What's that? I won. Ah, that's yeah. right, because you did win, because it's Dwellers of the Forbidden Cities. We're going to be our review tonight. Yeah, that was terrible. Oh, my God. Dad joke. Ah, I won. You did. It gets right here. I won right in front of you. Now, honestly, uh, unabashed opinion, having been through this game as a player uh, more than once over the years, uh, if you have a copy of this, you won. Uh, because, honestly, this is just, I, I think, one of the better examples of the creativity that was coming out in kind of what you would think of as the second era of module releases. Or second wave. Yeah, the, the wave two uh, should be distinguished from wave one. Wave one was the uh, the simple white... Uh, the monochromes, as they're called. Yeah, the, the monochrome editions. Yeah. So this, those were the first rush of modules hitting shelves in some game stores, and they, they did not, uh, certainly did not sell as well or become as famous or as popular as many of the later editions. Uh, some of them were obviously reprinted very quickly into the more colorful, attractive, modern-looking editions, uh, but that first wave uh, did not last long. That was a very narrow window period before TSR had suitable success and suitable money to start printing the second wave of modules. And in that second wave, you saw this huge leap forward in I, what I would think of as the thoroughness of background uh, for a location. Sure, okay. The modules were a little less of the stripped down, hole in the ground, get in there and kick something's butt. Uh, you started seeing uh, a great deal more uh, background story and rather involved uh, locations. Sure. Yeah, like uh, the original one, uh, G1 through 3. I mean, I'd argue that those are fairly involved and uh, very detailed, but you're right that they are very thematic. They're set in a place like, you know, the sitting of the Hill Giant Chief, I guess, is probably the most approachable one because it's the start and you can have various ways of starting uh, around it. True. But the other one is, uh, you know, the glacial rift of the uh, Frost Giant Yarl, and then the uh, the home of King Snurry Iron Belly, Hall of the Fire Giant King, and yeah. uh, those are a lot more. You know, okay, you're here. Let's get going. Now, um, I'd also be a little remiss uh -oh, if we said things like they were uh, simple, because there is nothing simple about Juma uh, Horrors of those original <laughs> wave. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. Uh, Look, simpler in the approach and background material. You know, very uh, straightforward in terms of where you're going and what you're doing. 
Now the modules themselves were actually very difficult, very involved, a lot of convoluted traps. Like the well, White Plume Mountain was a monochrome edition yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, so they're terrific modules. I'm that is not intended oh, well, as a no, diss. But we were just trying to say that if you if you took from that that we were saying they're simple, you would be wrong. No, no. But getting back onto the ter- uh, the topic at hand, dwellers of the Forbidden City as part of that second wave. You know, it's got that uh, frog getting blasted with a lightning bolt from afar, and of course, <laughs> I don't yes. know what's up with that guy's uh, headgear, but man, Errol Otis, there was never a conical hat that he didn't turn into a curly cue, was there? Yeah, the uh, what I think is a gnome uh, casting some kind of spell at some frogs uh, <laughs> is wearing one of the more unique pieces of headgear I have ever seen. Uh, and, I, well, it looks like a wizard's hat on acid. Uh, <laughs> Just like he's like he's wearing a, a seashell on top of it. Yeah, but the choice of colors is, is striking, and that's the yeah. Big this is thing. the art of Errol Otis uh, on this like nineteen one or nineteen eighty one publication uh, of Dwellers of the Forbidden City by David Cook. Yep, and that's a name that uh, should be familiar with with many. I uh, went on to do the uh, Dwellers in the Desert Nomads and the Temple of Death for uh, Basic Expert and a couple others as well. Um, very. Very prolific writer early on. I don't think he's as appreciated as he is um, some of the other writers, but I think that he definitely was one of the guys right on the spot. He was able to produce uh, good work. And this is classic of what it was. Is uh, TSR at the time, you know, got kind of pigeonholed into just, it's called Dungeons and Dragons, so that's what you do. Not a lot of actual dungeon crawls modules are really out there. I mean, yes, okay, you have White Plume Mountain and uh, Tomb of Horrors, and arguably, you could say that uh, the underhalls of um, the Fire Giant King are dungeon, pretty dungeon-like. But uh, you know, oh, they yeah. did they did a good job of changing it up because basically the safe bet is you could just sit there with uh, the dungeon geomorph set or uh, just the uh, back of the DM's guide open and generate your own dungeon levels for for your weekly game or regular game. But they decided to give you something different. And that's what their approach was to these modules. And I think uh, Dwellers of Vin City is another one that really started to show that it was it's really, to be honest, a an above-ground zoo dungeon. It really is a dungeon above ground. But it's surrounded by this large rift. And has these wonderfully evocative maps all the way through it. Um, you have bugbears and uh, some new monsters. The Wanti make their first dreaded appearance here. Oh, indeed. Yeah, they're in the back there, along with the Talsa. Yeah, let, let's skip to the back and you know, like give a, a look at some of the creatures that uh, were introduced to D&D proper in this module. And one of them was the Wanti, the, the snake people. Oh, snake cultists, yeah. Because you can't have a good pulp adventure without snake people. Yep, huh. Weird in the sense that they were not uniform single appearance snake people. Like they didn't have one fixed type of one T. Uh, they could be lower half people, upper half snake, uh, upper half snake. Yeah, they had several distinct. People. They had the pure bloods, which were more or less, uh, they look human in appearance, except they have some slight, like a forked tongue or snake eyes or occasionally uh, hands for snakes. And then you have the half breeds, which are the you know could have an upper or lower torso, snake meld, and then the complete abominations, which yeah, were right. the uh, uh, 
monster. Could be confused with a naga, you know, for most part. They're more snake than they are anything else. But, you know, yeah. So, and also they had psionic abilities too, right off the bat. And that was a big thing for some people. I know that a lot of guys out there in the old school do not like psionics for a variety of reasons. And whether they're, I agree with them or not, doesn't matter. That's up to each person to decide at their table. But I thought it was interesting that, you know, their body weaponry and uh, their ability to use other forms of uh, defense and psionic attack modes made it pretty interesting to have a character class like the psionicist or have psionically talented characters also facing them. Yeah, which really adds a new spin to things uh, on the occasions that you're dungeon crawling. And if you do have a psychically sensitive character... Uh, whole different types of Yeah, their ability prices. to use psychic ability to influence the snakes was uh, a nice little touch there. But, you know, again, it is... The signing system is very controversial any time you have it. But uh, also, uh, in this... You can turn the page there. We see oh. the first incarnation of our favorite monster in the both uh, AD&D and 5th uh, edition and Pathfinder, the Avalas. I've never liked having a fighter have to, you know. Yeah, they turn into in. slime. They, oh, uh, they're and, horrible. You know, but uh, anything that takes over your brain when you're a fighter, it's not great. Uh, which, frankly, uh, you know, being a hit point sponge meat shield, uh, going out there and doing harm, meant that I tended to throw myself right into the path of these kinds of things uh, on general principles. So, yeah, I've. <laughs> I've suffered some misfortunes owed to the uh, gooey, slimy Avalanche. Yeah, they are just... And their psionic ability, too. So, yeah, this is a really good adventure if you want to throw psionics in there. Uh, now, there was also the uh, Oriental Dragon, the Panlung, uh, the Mongrelman. Uh, and yeah, the Yellow Musk Creeper and the Panlung were from the original Pinfolio. Yeah, so. and the Tazloy. Uh Mentioned in these back sections, uh, with uh, the Tasloy being more like uh, tiny little two or three foot tall uh, creatures that uh, can use simple tools and uh, really try to hide in the jungle canopy and just pelt people with missile weapons and stay out of direct conflict. And uh, <laughs> they're nuisance level in large numbers, so. You know. Yeah, they're they're a nuisance level encounter in small groups, but in large groups or near their lairs, they can be very formidable, attacking in groups and often with surprise using the canopy as well as cover. Being masters of stealth, they surprise quite a bit. So, yeah, a lot of good uh, ambush monsters and also creepy crawlies like the very pulpy, like the Aboleth, of course, and uh, the Wanti, straight out of some of the weird uh, tales. Of the 30s, you know, the snake men. And the yellow musk creeper is one that I, I want to take time out to mention that this is a jungle setting campaign. Uh, you know, this module is set in a jungle and much of the player's time will be spent outdoors. Uh, aside from having littered the module itself with creatures and encounters that are tailored to that environment... Uh, where the players are the outsiders. You know, like the, the jungle is challenging enough to move through, to see uh, in, and to make sense of without things that, you know, like, it's a whole place full of plants. 
and you don't know when you're going to run across one of those plants that wants you to die. <laughs> yeah, you know, even the foliage wants to eat you. Well, you know, of course, what jungle adventure would be complete without man-eating plants? Well, in this case, ones that uh, eat your brain. Yeah, the yellow musk creeper and its ability to make zombies out of its victims. And also, of course, the appearance of these zombies will cause the cleric to start reaching for the holy symbol and committing turn undead. And then, much to the player's horror, what do you mean the zombies aren't automatically turned? Well, um, they're not really zombies. They cannot be turned by a cleric. Yeah, that is the unique feature of the zombies that have been spawned by a yellow musk creeper. It is the effect of the plant keeping the body animated. It is not undead, negative energy, you know, evil clerical spells. And so the things that would normally make a zombie or an undead vulnerable to a cleric's turning ability are useless in this instance. And this is not something that has been routinely repeated with a lot of other monsters. They, they didn't just willy-nilly run around nerfing the cleric's turn undead power on everything. Uh, this is one of those rare moments where uh, they kind of got you dead to rights. You know, it's animated by a biological organism. It's not undead negative plane energy or yeah, the, some the, evil uh, god. The prawns are growing, growing inside the skull of the uh, unfortunate victims. But yeah, so there are a lot of good monsters. I mean, the Aboleth is, yeah, we talk a lot bad about it, but as DMs, we totally love the Aboleth. It's psychic abilities, it's domination, charm, powers, and the fact that they're just walking slime piles of fishy goo. Just horrifying to contemplate the smell alone. Let alone their appearance, uh, alien appearance is just completely bizarre. And it lends itself to kind of that Lovecraftian influence that we as old school gamers seem to love so much. It's a very good bee sherry in the back here, and I think it doesn't get quite enough love. But, uh, you know, here we are, you know, giving it its due. Uh, yeah, well, I, I don't want to give it its due. Oof. I've never liked the Evelette. It's just a grotesque uh, and very tough encounter. Okay, this is not... Oh, yeah, you just couldn't go uh, full ham at it and just, like, hope it... High spell resistance. Um Yeah. Oh, no, wait. These don't have very high. No, they have uh, standard, standard. Yeah, they do. All right. They, well, my bad. I'd always thought... But their psionic ability is at 250. Yeah, they got so. 250 points with, uh, let's see, CD and E, so that's the uh, eight, all the way up to psionic blast. It's an eight-hit dice creature, for Pete's sake. I mean, their saves are pretty solid. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you've got a mid-level party, such as this module recommends, between fourth and seventh level, this is not the creature you want to meet showing up right out of the gate. Uh yeah, so anyway, let's turn to the module proper. We'll give it our, we've given a walk through the monster manual, so we've, uh, or the monster section, which was always a treat in those uh, early waves of modules, because you usually got some extra monsters that you could always surprise and recycle in other parts of your campaign. But this one pretty much uh, sets itself well in uh, the world of Greyhawk initially. I mean, of course, always, uh, your campaign may vary, and you may have a different place to put it. So, it definitely uh, starts off that you're in here and the nominal character level is 4 from 7 is where you want to start with. And if you're starting with 4th level, you obviously want a large party. Oh, so you goodness, have a group yes. of characters. Um, yeah, you can have a lot of 4th uh, level characters, but about 
I think this module really sits pretty handily between uh, between about five fifth level minimum for an average uh, group size of about six to seven. And of course, the AD and D first edition uh, experience tables will balance that out with your uh, rogues and or thieves. Excuse me. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> yeah, thieves. Uh, being higher level than just about anybody else, and with your magic users in that little sweet spot. Hey, look, I've got fireball and lightning bolt now. Yeah, so they're doing pretty yeah, well. Yeah, the fifth level mage is probably a hot idea because uh, there's a number of circumstances that would call for some uh, third level spells in this that otherwise might not be accessible to spell. Yeah, magic. they're not going to be going crazy with it though. You know, they're going to be holding on to them. It's yeah. not going to be fireball, lightning bolt, fireball, lightning bolt. Every single encounter. Yeah, do not have it to dispense uh, at will. Now, the gist of this, you know, quick version, uh, rumors of merchant caravans being waylaid and the treasures never seen again. Uh, They're not making it to some other civilized locale. They're not being resold somewhere else. They're just disappearing into the jungle. Something in there desires to accumulate a great hoard of treasure. And, you know, quick version... Uh, they put out the bait that, like, an ex- the DM should allow the players to find an informant or a source of information, like a half-crazed survivor that can draw a crude sketch map of the area uh, and the general direction in which players should travel to draw near uh, this troubled area that so routinely is uh, beset by... Uh, robberies of caravans with like nearly no survivors of any kind uh, then spice it up with a few rumors but. yeah the native folk uh, avoid the place that it is definitely the forbidden city for them but apparently it's built on ancient ruins so that precursor to the monolithic uh, pre-human history is here and of course that lends itself well to the presence of the aboleth but Nonetheless, as you get in here, it is the map is pretty well laid out with several key encounter uh, given more detail throughout the areas. But uh, long and short of it, uh, yes, for the spoilers, there is an Aboleth here. And there's also a very powerful magic user who has managed to make um, themselves very comfortable in this area with their powerful abilities. They are 12th level, so that is no mean feat either. And uh, they're yeah, deeply they're- ensconced. At the root of the crisis is a 12th level mage who has set up shop, made a deal with the, the most powerful of the other creatures who dwell in this forbidden city. Uh, the Wanti, the snake people that... Well, and the bugbears and the... Uh, well, and the snake people have, in responding to his ministrations, you know, the, the mage has convinced them to rebuild their empire and reach for glory. And to do that, they've dragooned bugbears into being their bully boys, their, their shock troops, so to speak, uh, to go into the outside world. And the bugbears have, you know, pretty much terrorized the area until these smaller, less relevant creatures have all towed the line or kept the peace. Uh, so the player characters are not in, entering into a place where they have a lot of potential room for finding allies. Yeah, and then also the Talsoy have kind of been pressed into service, although they're nominally allied at best and then the bullywugs are the independent players here very tribal and uh, not really willing to work with many others 
But they do work with the Montwanti, and also interspersed is the mongrel men, descendants of slaves long ago forgotten and in here. And yeah, humans that have like drifted so far from humanity, uh, having, well, presumably had the descendants or you know, crossbred descendants of scores of different creatures over the centuries. Yeah, they're an amalgamation of many other creatures now. And of course... Yeah, as insulting as it could be to be called mongrel men, it, it is a term from a time. So um, I I think that probably some people could make an argument that for a little bit of racism in there, but I'm kind of going to give it a pass because it wasn't really meant to be any allegory per se as much as it was a fallen race that has been devolved. Yeah, and they're... It's worth mentioning that whenever they mention something like that, it's not because humans... We're with other humans. Right. It is always because humans were with truly monstrous creatures. Uh, and then the monstrous creatures produced were with other monstrous creatures. But there's still some shred of humanity in there, just not very much. Uh, so monsters make more monsters. Uh, with, you know, the allegory being that, uh, you know, humans and humans, you still get humans. Humans and non-humans, you know, Let's look at the tales of the Greek gods. You know, you well, sure, and also a, the, Minotaur gets a date with a Medusa. You know, the Wanti and the uh, Aboleth. You know, definitely uh, point a lot to where the, uh, the mongrel men came from. But nonetheless, so you have a wide variety of places in there, and kind of an ecology setup. And this is where we're getting at that there was a little bit of thought given to this now, yeah, rather there's a than community just, here. Okay, there's a series of communities that are not necessarily always at odds, uh, but they're also not necessarily allies. You know, they're... they're yeah, the bullywugs hate the Talzoi. The Talzoi hate everybody else. Uh, the <laughs> bugbears just basically kick everybody's butt. And uh, and they, they do it they, because the one T pay well. I mean, yeah, this is working out great for the bugbears, you know. Yep. Wait, you know, we just enforce your will here and we get to live like kings? Oh, awesome, we're in. So, yeah, I mean, you, you have a kind of uh, closed system deep down in this uh, jungle rift with overgrown uh, ruins. Yeah, and in addition to many of the other um, tropical encounters like alamigators or crocodiles or whatever you want to call them. Croc yep, crocodiles down there, just chewing on a boat. <laughs> so much for that boat. Okay, and... Uh, you know, many of the other jungle monsters that you would normally not encounter in a temperate or dungeon climate are going to be found here. Um, the only, th I guess the only thing I would add is there's not many dinosaurs. And I'm not really sure if I'm cool with that. I'm just kidding. No, no. Uh, it, <laughs> it probably wouldn't hurt the atmosphere much. No, uh, they even mentioned in the beginning of this module in the DM's notes that it would probably not hurt to have a druid along. Uh, so, you know, oh, yeah, with this all the one. stuff in the jungle and all the natural creatures and all the plants and stuff that you've got to deal with, uh, bringing along Florida Man, the Druid, is probably <laughs> not a bad idea. Ah, yes. Kevin, the Druid. <laughs> no, I, 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 I digress. I probably shouldn't diss on Druids as hard as I do. Uh, well, it wouldn't be the same podcast but, if he didn't. But this is a module... <laughs> that totally puts the druid and the ranger at the forefront of the party. Okay, this is a good one to have these guys along. 
Uh, it's just made for that. Florida Man and Survivor Man, yep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we got Bear Grylls the Ranger and Florida Man the Druid. Woo, dude. Hold my beer and watch this. Yeah, so there are many good Keaton encounters that are highlighted in one of the uh, little handouts there. Of course, it would be a shame if that they didn't give more of these maps so you could put it out in front of the players. It's one of my little uh, pet peeves. Yeah. Um, rather than having the key like, oh, we're going to go to Area 1. That looks interesting. Rather than just throwing a map down in front of the players and like, okay, now figure this out. It's always kind of cool because it's a shame because these these maps are kind of uh, isolinear or, I guess, uh, top-down. Yeah, uh, topographical, uh, but without any relief, you know. So that now, uh, these above shot maps, I mean, they give you a good vague idea to describe by, but they give away too much that you wouldn't want to photocopy them and hand them off to your player. Well, no, but I think that they could have. That would identify to the player, like, oh, there's something going on over here, isn't there? Uh, I think just having the uh, numbers erased, I think there's a couple yeah. PDFs that you can have. If you just took the keynotes off and put it out in front of your players and said, you know, this is what you can see here, and just kind of move a sliding paper across if you needed to. Um, that Because these maps are really nice, and uh, maybe not as nice as the ones that came out of Dragonlance, but I still liked them. And, uh, of course, you know, what, what jungle adventure would not be complete without a precarious rope bridge with an ambush at it so the other hats there and also uh you know being the zoo dungeon you also have a zorn that's uh kind of greedy but not necessarily uh out to start combat with players although it's kind of demanding it's wanting yeah gimme yeah. gimme 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 Ooh, i smell tasty metal and uh you know it's all in all a really good venture. I like the pagoda at the center, you know, because that's obviously going to attract the uh, player's interest. Like, what is the pagoda doing here? You know, and it's pretty well put together. The big problem there, and again, spoiler alert, is the Garden of Rust monsters within. Yeah, there's another one that was a terrific move on their part. Uh, you know, <laughs> a uh, small number of rust monsters that are being raised for experiments by the evil mage that has united the Wan-Ti. Uh, <laughs> they are always hungry. They will smell and attack any metal in the area. Now, in the last time I was a player in the playthrough of this, uh, the fighter got mauled, at which point it turned into a horror game because he was effectively naked. No, no! <laughs> yeah, that, just like they took everything. He, it's like, we got to go back to town and resupply the fighter because the guy with the most hit, hit points literally at this point is now only a meat shield. You know, we can throw him in front of stuff, hand him some improvised weapons and, you know, but no armor, no shield, no sword. You know, he's back. No, I think his shield survived. That was it. You got a couple things, yeah, that the managed to make it out before the rest monsters were driven away. But, but yeah. Yeah, that good way to screw with the players. Uh, Oh, yeah, and then, you know, of course, the climax with the uh, Wanty, and, you know, if you really uh, suss around and your players are really into it, you can expand more on uh, after the Aboleth encounter, which is well hidden. Uh, if they find that, then you can expand on the Dwellers of Forbidden City. So 
you know, again, it leaves it open that uh, further adventures could be had here. If the DM is willing to keep going and the players are interested, obviously you could. That was one of the charms of those early modules. They always kind of left the door open for more. Yeah, you may have to go back into town, sell off some stuff, resupply, get some healing potions, you know, uh, acquire a new spell. There's enough going on here that we haven't mentioned, uh, not to spoil everything. There are enough areas going on in these ruins that while it is very challenging to get in and then get back out and return again, uh, if the players choose to do that, you know, per tradition, it's up to the DM to refill slots for monsters that were slain, uh, to re-inhabit areas with new critters. Uh, if they have gone away for like, oh, well, we had to march back to town and it took us over a week and, you know, then we need we rest it up for three days and it takes a week to get back. Well, hey, you know, 14 days. By then, you have every right as a DM to have uh, slipped some new items in there. Like, oh, just yeah. because they killed off the giant spiders in this area doesn't mean that some new ones won't move in now that the old one is gone. Or, you know, another monster of a different type. Keep players always on guard, but... But this, yeah, it can easily be transformed into a periodic, you know, jungle delve campaign uh, where the environment and the natural creatures, the, the non-monstrous creatures, in tandem, you know, by using the, the difficult terrain in tandem with random attacks by natural creatures you can up the danger level of seemingly not-that-tough monsters. Like, say, for instance, you're trying to ascend or descend a, a high tree, get a vantage point, or uh, things like that. Uh, what a terrible time while trying to hang on to something to be attacked by creatures. Like, yeah. for instance, uh, among the things here, giant wasps. Uh, you know, you're... 50 feet up a 100-foot-tall tree as, like, special... Or giant, bald-faced murder hornets. Yeah, giant, bald-faced murder hornets. You know, it's like, the, man, that is a... Thing's got a whole hit dice. Uh, no. <laughs> um, point being, it rapidly winds up being much more dangerous for players who are at a vulnerable moment. Uh, or, for instance, they're trying to encamp and rest, which, if you look at the history of exploration of, you know, some highly difficult places, uh, you'll find that one of the biggest factors in the exhaustion and eventual collapse or retreat of scouting parties and surveyors was that so many people got so little sleep, uh, so little um, preserved food in mm -hmm. a hot, you know, questionable environment, uh, so many people wound up with sicknesses from uh, contact with, you know, unknown bug bites and things like that, that eventually it would whittle them down and they would turn back, exhausted, unable to sleep. Oh, yeah. Um, you're like, we went in with 47 people. We came out with three, you know, and they didn't even eat each other to do it. They still had some nominal supplies, but, you know, just that many people were devoured by a hostile environment. And this particular module remains a favorite of mine because it has all those opportunities to evoke that fear of the unknown. Yeah, if you make, um, using first edition rules, if you really want to be a total dick DM, 
you can start having all the party's wooden and oh yeah leather equipment make daily saving throws to see if it disintegrates. Even That's magical the- items will take a hit after a while. I mean, they're pretty well preserved to begin with, so they're probably much going to see through. See it through, but uh, you know, if your cleric doesn't have uh, crate food or water, which then starts to uh, take down on their daily spell repertoire, um, you know, your food's going to be gone. You're going to be starving, and of course, then the uh, daily check for diseases in the jungle, malaria, and other forms of dysentery and cholera can start to come in, especially with around uh, certain groups of monsters. <laughs> yeah, you can start to really see the debilitating effects. Of... I'm pretty sure the bugbears poop upstream from here. Oh yeah. Now you it know. is dangerous to be in a place like that for a great period of time without abundant supplies and certain magical preparations. Yeah, so... magic can ease it, but you know that's still taking time out of the uh, clerics and magic is your spell slots to keep up with the uh, pace of the duration and. Uh, climate of the jungle so but all in all it's very pulpy it's a lot of fun um it's one of those uh, modules that uh you get a lot of play value it is just more than just one or two sessions it's probably about six or seven if you do it well and that is why at the beginning i mentioned that this is not the traditional straightforward dungeon delve that people think of uh it doesn't have a i mean there is obviously one chief primary protagonist target, and that is the mage organizing the Wanti. However, there are lots of other areas, lots of other locations, a widely spread out uh, series of interconnected ruins uh, with just so much more going on that it will take players multiple sessions to get through this one. I've I've never heard of a group that just, like, nailed this in one. Yeah, it at least takes, you know, even if you're devoting, like, six to eight hours to it, it still takes about two or three sessions to clear, or to put a good chunk of it into it. And if your players are the type that like to explore and uh, really yeah. delve yeah. into some places and see all the nooks and crannies on the map, yeah, they're going to basically get your money's worth out of this one. Yeah, so you this, can wind up sandboxing it for quite a while. And then there's plenty of uh, suggestions at the back of where to go next and how to really place this in your campaign. So if you want to expand on it, you know, obviously the Avaleth, creepy and gooey as they are, they are a bunch of jerks and they're going to be up to no good pretty soon. Oh, given. (laughs) So, you know, you can go on to that. And also, if the players are smart enough, they could turn uh, part of the Forbidden City into a base of operations, if they're smart and resourceful. Ah, Yeah, likewise. It is a remote and difficult location, and if they develop a certain level of uh, savvy in terms of having the correct spells handy all the time, uh, they could easily set this up as a base of operations afterwards, establish themselves in a place that is a remote locale uh, where the hostility of the environment suddenly becomes their ally so that you know people who are not fully prepared to if they're coming after you and they're not ready for this you're like oh man it looks like those guys we pissed off from the thieves guild uh, you know sent another rep and look at him he's a yellow musk zombie now Yep, and plus, you know, there's other things you can always use, like if the players don't wipe out the bullywugs, 
you know, there's a nice little map of them, and you can, you know, who can't recycle bullywugs? <laughs> I've used it like several times, that little map out of there. So, yeah, so uh, I won. Uh, one of the little uh, gems of that classic era, maybe the second wave, but it was definitely worth it. And, you know, a lot of good memories, and it's uh, for a lot of people's attraction that's an above ground zoo dungeon. Sure, okay, that's, that's a fair one because, you know, there's clan- canyon walls inexorably surrounding this entire environment. But, you know, it gives it some scope and allows you to focus. If you set that aside for a little bit and just go with that, yeah, there's plenty of places to explore and a lot of fun to be had. Oh, and uh, being buried in a rift, I should mention that this, like, when he mentions canyon walls, we're, we're talking like a descent of about 100 feet. Uh, now, obviously, there are multiple ways into that area per se. Uh, there's more than one way to get down into there. Including the express elevator way by just jumping off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not recommended, but hey, you've got enough rope. I'm not saying it can't be. Or hit points or lack of wisdom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> speedy end of the adventure. But uh, again, hostile environment combined with inconvenient natural monsters creates a, a series of threats that punch at the player character's weight class despite being made up from comparatively simple elements. And I approve of that kind of a scenario. I really do. Uh, well right. worth it. I won. Indeed. And, uh, well, I think that'll wrap it up yeah. for us. Uh, we don't do many uh, retrospectives because, well, we're trying to branch out to other games. And uh, we spent pretty much our early time going over a lot of those classics. And so you only get one shot at them. And, of course, we all flub it up. Oh, sure. But, uh, you know, you want to keep... We want to kind of spread them out so that we salt them out, uh, make sure that they're there when we need them. And, uh, of course, it's nice to come back to the classics once in a while. Yeah, it certainly is. And we'll be doing other retrospectives from other games as well as uh, new stuff, too. So that's a big thing. But anyway, that's going to do it for us. That's our podcast. We thank you for hanging out and hope you enjoyed. Uh, We definitely had a lot of fun walking through memory lane on this one as well as just talking about the... uh, differences in how the approach was you know from the very early days to you know what was considered i guess maybe the golden age yeah i, I don't I know would, i would consider this the golden age yeah. uh, the reprints of the monochrome modules and the expansion of the franchise and a wider array of writers and uh, creatives uh, participating in the release of modules mm-hmm. i really feel like that era was the moment it was exploding outwards, uh, post-1980. It was just really taking off. So we'll keep coming at you uh, twice a week now. I think we're pretty much up to that. We'll have a couple ins and outs probably here and there as things... You never know what will be thrown in our path during the summer, but I I feel like I've got a good bead on my schedule. Yeah, it's almost... August is almost half over already. I have been monumentally overworked, so it's all flying past me like a blur. I mean... Yeah, it just seems like it's going crazy, uh, past, crazy past right now. You're not so. the kidding. Just do But, in any case, uh, we appreciate you sticking around with us. And, of course, if you have any comments or questions or concerns, and, of course, you may have many, many, many concerns, uh, given the scope of this podcast and its two authors, of course, you can get a hold of us on the uh, Dice of Screaming Facebook page, or you can get a hold of us directly on Twitter, me at Death Hand Gaming. Myself. At Magi Box. Direct us, message us there, DM us there. Ha ha. See what it did there? Yeah. And of course, it's time you, for you to DM us. And uh, 
you can also download the Anchor app and uh, you can hit that subscribe button gently. It's been through a lot and it probably needs a hug considering <laughs> last week, you know, giving it the red onion wrapped in caramel. But uh, yes, uh, just, just give it a hug. It's been through a lot. Just uh, hit that subscribe button and you can get notifications whenever we put a new podcast up. And so you can be right there. First, this with the most. So let us know what you think. And of course, always keep the sunny side up and may, may the, the dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya.